Welcome to the OK Productive Podcast. If you're listening, then you know that we are a podcast about practical productivity tips, parenting tricks, and other kinds of banter. If you want to, hop on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us at OK Productive on all of those three platforms. All right. How's it going, Leo? Good. Um, really glad we're doing this theme for November regarding writing. So last week, we had Allison on to talk about flash fiction and how that's helped her both in her production of fiction, but also in practicing her writing skills for her professional life. And something I wanted to talk about was how important it is to constantly like sell ourselves when we write. One of the things that I really appreciated about the interview with Allison was that while the focus was on fiction and using different kinds of tools to write more fiction and find our styles, it was nice that she pointed out lots of cases where you could use the same tools and a lot of the same parameters to improve on like business writing. So it's nice that we have this opportunity today to uh, talk to someone specifically about doing things online, writing in ways that promote ourselves, uh, sell ourselves and our products. So I'd like to introduce our guest, Sophia Dagnan. Hi, Sophia. Hey, really happy to be here. Well, before we dive too far in, I've been thinking about like why it is important to sell ourselves and our products online. Um, it's one of those things that you see everyone doing it. And maybe we don't take the time to consider why it's important. Or maybe it, it's just one of those things that is obvious. What do you think, Leo? Yeah, I think it's really important. I'm someone who has to refresh my resume and make sure I have a good landing page where people can find me or a good social media page for potential clients or employers. And I always have to sell myself and what I do and my specialties. So Sophia, explain exactly what you specialize in. So I'm a conversion copywriter. So to put that in actual human words, I help companies and individuals sell themselves better and sell their products better. So they make more money. How did you get started doing this? So kind of by accident. I have a totally related degree to my field of archaeology. <laughs> obviously, the link there is absolutely apparent and obvious to everyone. But after moving to the United States, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Archaeology is one of those things where it's so physically demanding that by the time you hit 30, if you've actually worked as an archaeologist, you're pretty much dead to the world. And I wasn't sure that was the life I wanted for myself. So I started looking at other things, like, what can I do? And I always wanted to write. But at that point, I had no idea that digital marketing was a thing that actually existed. But I started Googling. I found Upwork. And I was like, ah, oh, so people pay you to write stuff. That's interesting. I can write stuff. I got some really terrible gigs on Upwork. And my next reaction was like, yeah, I'm not writing stuff for five bucks. That's ridiculous. Like, that's completely <laughs> unsustainable. I cannot possibly do that for long. I need to find a way to do this better. <clears throat> I started Googling around, like, how do you find other things? How do you find, like, work that pays well? And I'd just come out of college at this point. So to me, work that pays well was, like, my bar was not very high, let's just say. Yes. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I started applying for gigs that paid like 50 bucks for a post and then 100 bucks for a post. And my real breakthrough came when a content marketing manager from this SaaS startup called Maeve Social just sent me an email. and was like, hey, would you be interested in writing for us and what are your rates? To this day, I have no idea how she found me and why she emailed me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it was Twitter. 
I think she found me on Twitter because that's the only thing I can possibly think of. But she found me, she emailed me, and that was the first like real piece of like, I'm writing about marketing for SaaS. And the way I started, I just leveraged the stuffing out of that. I started reaching out to other SaaS companies. I was like, hey, I'm writing for these guys. I can write for you too. This is like how many shares this got. And this is why this person liked this. And do you want me to do that for you? And it was just like approaching a bunch of companies until a few of them were like, yes, please stop emailing us. And sure, you can write for us. (laughs) Okay. And that's how it happened. So I'm kind of curious. It sounds like you did a lot of research early on, but there was this uh, like really quick momentum that it seems like you developed. And so do you think that there was some sort of a, uh, like a natural talent there or some of your past experiences put you in a spot where you could identify how to improve upon writing in these ways and getting more people to notice you and get people to uh, click and read your content? Or have you thought about that? Yes, it's one of those things that it sounds quick. It was by no means quick. (laughs) Especially early on, it used to really make me feel not incompetent, but it made me question my abilities because you hear all these stories of how you started writing online and then you made a bunch of money and you grew your career. Like growing my business to something that was sustainable. So to me, sustainable numbers wise means like where I was pulling in 50K consistently a year. So that's not a lot of money. It's like a decent amount of money to live, but it's not like crazy amounts. To get to that stage where this was happening consistently took about three years of doing a lot of really stupid things (laughs) that didn't work very well. (laughs) I think that's really great for listeners to hear because you're totally right. There's this idea that people just set out and we see their successes, but we don't see those three years of buildup and a portfolio that they've got of potentially lower quality that is laying down the bricks to get them where they are today. Yeah, because a lot of that context is just, it's, I suppose it's a bit boring to talk about the context because it's just like, so what did I do? I did a lot of research. I started pitching companies. I pitched companies pretty badly for quite a long time and I didn't hear anything back. And so It was the boring uh, process of, hey, so I'm doing this pitching thing. This pitching thing isn't getting me the results I want. So you just go in and you adjust the process. So you're like, okay, how do I pitch better? And you just sit in Google, how do I pitch better? And you find a lot of things. And then you're like, wait, none of these things actually work for me. And the biggest, I suppose, like moment of figuring out stuff for me was that I'm somebody who's very uncomfortable with the idea of selling myself. I don't really have a sales background. If you'd said, like, you should sell yourself to college-age me, I'd be like, uh, <laughs> that's not a job I want to do. Like, no, I'm not doing that. But it was realizing that it's not actually about me. So when you're building a business, say you're like your parent, you're somebody who's just building a side, I don't like the term side hustle, but like you're building a side business. Selling yourself has nothing to do with you. It's about customer. And it's one of those things that, it sounds so simple when you say it, but it took me about three to four years of trying to like figure out how do I stand out? How do I make myself be different? When we realized that, A, I just, I'm not a fan of doing that. I don't particularly like standing out. I like doing really good work, but I don't like talking about how great I am all the time. But it was like, no, it's not about you. It's about figuring out what your customer needs. Like, what do I do that I do well that I can basically 
help somebody else do. You stuck with us for three years and you were refining your process and your style and finding out what works and how to speak to the people who were interested in you and your content. Was that something that was apparent at the beginning or what was it about writing and wanting to improve that kept you going and kept you improving for three years? Well, I wanted to make money. I think the biggest part is we start businesses because we need an extra income. At least that was, I had a very practical reason. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure how to break into the corporate scene in the States. Because while it's not culturally that different from where I grew up, which was Scotland, it's still, you come in, you have no network, you don't really know how things work. And so it was figure that out or figure out how to start a business. And because I'd already started researching and I kind of had an idea of I could write, I knew that I could learn to write a lot better. This just made sense. It sounds like a big portion of writing and selling yourself is putting yourself in the shoes of the customer and researching them or client or potential employer or something like that. Is that correct? Yes. I can expand on that. (laughs) Yeah. So what are the components of that as far as like research is concerned? Okay. So people don't actually buy stuff. We buy solutions to problems. Like everything that you've ever bought in your life, you've bought because there is some problem that you're trying to solve. And it's figuring out like how your customer thinks about your solution that shows you exactly like the path to selling yourself or your product. And the way to start with that is to research. And now you say research and it's one of those things like, oh yeah, you start with the research, but what does that actually mean? How do I find out what people want? Because yeah, you can ask them. But people aren't very good at like, it's not a lack of honesty. It's a lack of, how do I put it? It's the fact that somebody's asking them that question. That means that the answer won't exactly be closer to truth. Does that make sense? (laughs) Exactly. It's because we don't actually know what we want. Yeah. Even those of us who are like, oh, I am so self-aware. We are not very self-aware at all. So we do a lot of things based on instinct and based on things we've done in the past. And we are repeating these like patterns based on like just past behavior, past experiences over and over again. So when you ask us like, why do you want this thing? Or like, if I made this, would you buy it? Well, you kind of go, you think about like yourself in the future. You don't think about the person you actually are. You think about this like magical version of yourself that you see as existing, you're like, well, that magical version of me will probably buy that and they'll probably buy it for these reasons. But this data isn't really correct. This is just wishful thinking. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak to your customers. It's just about figuring out how to ask the right questions. Instead of asking them about things they would do, it's about asking them things that they have done. And sure, you have a little bit of bias there because we don't always remember exactly what we did but it gives you a much stronger place to start. So let's say I want to start selling really fancy cat lamps on the internet, like lamps in shape of cats, because why not? So to interview my customer, I'm not going to ask them, hey, like, would you buy a cat-shaped lamp? Because the future wishful thinking self would be like, well, in my really awesome new apartment, like a cat-shaped lamp would be an awesome conversation piece. But that's never going to happen. Like They're never going to buy a cat-shaped lamp in that potential future. (laughs) So you ask them about lamps that they have bought in the past. Like, what made you buy that lamp? What lamps do you have in your home at the moment? Then that gives you a much stronger idea of who the people who buy, like, weird lamps are. And then you speak to them and you ask them deeper questions. Yeah, I think even subconsciously, people might not be aware that they're 
in the habit of making certain decisions over and over again very consistently. It's kind of like uh, buying wine or books or games or lots of things that are on a shelf that have some kind of a, a description. They look nice. And we all know and we're told that we shouldn't buy it just based on appearances. And there are exceptions. But a lot of the time, if something does resonate, like if we really like that wine with, I'm going to use your uh, cat example again, the bottle that is shaped like a cat, then we are inclined to continue buying those kinds of products. Exactly. And I love the wine example because I am somebody who buys wine entirely based on how much I like the label. It has like <laughs> zero logic to do it. Like my purchase, I'm like, this label is cool. Therefore, this bottle of wine is cool. So if somebody wants to start a wine company, I'm a good person to interview about labels, <laughs> for example, but not about all the other things that go into wine, like percentages and where it was made and where the grapes come from, because that stuff I really like, it has nothing to do with my buying decision in reality. In my dream world, I like to think that I would be like a fancy person that knows wine, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, right. I wanted to touch back on what you said about why selling yourself is important. It sounds like one of the reasons that you did it was basically like income. But I think there's a lot of other things that we do in our lives where selling ourselves is important. For instance, I know, Eric, you've had situations where you're trying to get people to volunteer for helping out with different events in the area. Or for instance, you're trying to get somebody to read a blog post. What are some other use cases or what are some other instances where you think selling yourself is important and being able to be in other people's shoes in order to do that is a good fit? I'm going to go around this in a slightly circular way, but hopefully it makes sense at the end. So a lot of us, and at least this is a belief that I have, is that sales is sleazy. Sales is bad. Trying to sell things makes you into a horrible, bad used car salesman. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is not actually the case. Sales is problem solving. That's all it is. It's you have a solution, somebody has a problem, and they give you a medium of exchange, which today happens to be money. But it's just, it's a transaction. It's a problem solving transaction. It's necessary. Like humans have been exchanging things forever. Otherwise, we wouldn't really exist. So the first step, I think, to selling yourself is realizing that it's not really about you. It's a useful transaction that has to be good for both. Like a successful sale, it has to be good for you. So you have to feel good about it. And the person that's buying your solution has to feel good about it. But it's a mutually beneficial transaction at its core. This is why it's not, I think the biggest mistake I see people make is trying to make it all about like you, what you can offer, like how great you are, how great your product is which is important, like your product has to be good, but your real job is to help that other person solve the problem that they're having. That's the thing, and this is why it's a really useful skill to have in all areas, because whether you're trying to inspire somebody to recycle or you're trying to get them to come to an event, this comes from a place of understanding who they are, how they see themselves, how they want to see themselves, and how whatever solution you have is going to help them do that. So this is a little overused and cliche, but you really are just selling them the best possible version of themselves, the version of themselves where that problem is being solved. So if you're inviting somebody to an event, let's say like it's a park cleaning event, like you want to clean your local park so that the kids have somewhere awesome to play. You don't sell them with the aspect of like, hey, we're cleaning the park. You should just come here because it's the right thing to do. 
it's not very effective. You have to turn it around to like, hey, this is how cleaning the park is going to make you feel. This is the effect it's going to have on your life. And this is why it's a good thing for you to do. That's so well put. One of the things about a good salesperson is they're willing to like at least give good advice and not miss sell. I don't even know what the right term is, but not sell something to somebody that is not a good fit for. Because I think a lot of bad salespeople just like try to shove a product down your throat where some salespeople might be like, yeah, maybe this isn't a good fit. The other problem I've also seen is like people lower their price Mm -hmm. when they sell something as a way to like convince someone that they should buy the product, which I don't think is a really good idea in a lot of cases. I think a lot of times it's you need to be selling A to the right people. And like you said, you need to be in their shoes and being able to figure out what pain they're having and who they are and how they identify themselves. Mm, So that thing you just said is gold. I completely agree. And to build on that, you can only afford to be a bad salesperson and to sell on price if you're a giant corporation. Like Amazon, you can't outcompete them on price. That would be ridiculous. They can afford to lower the price on everything. Walmart can afford to lower prices. This is a technique that if you're building your own business, those techniques are basically not for you. Yeah. Therefore, the competition you're beating. <laughs> right. And I think it goes back to like when you're organizing an event or you're trying to look for volunteers or you're trying to convince somebody something, don't rely necessarily on compromise so much as being able to understand where they're coming from. Because when you put yourself in a compromising position, like for instance, you're getting a volunteer and they're like, oh, can I get like five hours out of you? Can I get two hours out of you? Can I just have you come for 15 minutes in the beginning? Like that doesn't necessarily help convince someone because you're just going to get a less dedicated person. What's a better way to sell that is to provide like, what are they looking for and why volunteering might benefit them or what they believe in? Yeah, make it good for them. Right. Exactly. Otherwise, you're just racing to the bottom because... Exactly, exactly. If somebody's going to use that, yeah, if somebody's going to like use your product or come to your volunteering event and do the thing, they have to be motivated to do it. Right. Otherwise, they won't get the results. They won't solve the problem. And if you're not solving the problem, then you're not really selling a solution. Yep, exactly. So... A lot of the promotion that we're talking about is in the form of writing. And I imagine this is going to be writing that's online. So where do you like to do the writing and where do you get the most benefit to promote a product or a business or a person even? Okay. So the approach I'm going to share is something that's going to be great for people who um, are not big social media fans. If you're not a big social media fan, if you don't like the idea of selling yourself of like trying to appear really smart in front of a bunch of people, the stuff I do, that's probably going to work for you because I'm in that exact same boat. So my way of promoting myself, the biggest way is through email. And weirdly, it's through code emails, which I have found that if you do them, if you do them from the perspective that we just talked about, you put yourself in the other person's shoes, you understand what they need and I'm actually going to uh, explain what I mean by understand what you need, because it's one of those phrases where there's a lot in it, but I will get to that a bit in a second. So you understand what they need, then you can be really effective with email. So what do I mean by uh, understand what they need? So I'm going to tell you about my code emailing experience and how I've used that to build my business. So I started my business in content, which involved writing a lot of content for other companies to sell themselves. But because of the way I started it, a lot of it came to me through referrals and things like that. So I didn't really have to sell myself. I'd hit this point where things were coming to me without me really having to promote it very much. And so it was 
there's not that much I can say that's actually going to be useful on this front. But I decided to change my business. I decided I didn't want to be a content writer. I wanted to be a copywriter. And this meant having to find new clients. So suddenly I was stuck in the, okay, if I want to change my business and I want to be more profitable, I have to find a way to put myself in front of those clients. Okay, so I can do that through social media. But I realized that, A, social media is so crowded. I find even the thought of starting to promote myself there completely overwhelming. I agree completely. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, nope, I don't want to do it through social media because it's just, I don't know what to do there. It confuses me to this day. So I thought, okay, so I don't want to do social media. What can I do to book myself in front of my clients? I can email them. So my ideal clients are SaaS businesses. And I use a lot of software. So there was a nice match there that I used a lot of software. I signed up with an email list. I've trialed a bunch of things. And so I was like, okay, so these are people I know. I understand what they need. I understand what their products are. It's not just that I don't want something from them. I want to figure out how to make the thing better because I use their thing and I love their thing. And so I just started. <laughs> I found all the CMOs of the products I had used and I just emailed them. I was like, hey, I really love this thing about your product. And then I described a few specific things that like, I genuinely just loved. And I get really enthusiastic about uh, software. So I think this helped me because you can read that in my tone. So I was like, hey, I really love this thing. And I explained in detail. And I suddenly found myself thinking, wow, like what this team is doing is amazing. Like I really want to get to know them. And I would like write that verbatim pretty much. So then I'd introduce myself. Like, hey, so I'm Sophia. I'm a copywriter. I do this. And it's just like a single sentence. Like, do you have time to chat next week? And that was it. And so I emailed people. And to my actual surprise, like about 70 to 80% got back to me. It wasn't old chef. It was like, hey, like, this is a really good email. And sure. And I had a bunch of conversations with people that I would not have been able to reach in any other way that eventually ended up doing business with me. Not all of them, but enough yeah. to... Uh, start building. That's awesome. So besides email, how about like blog writing, things like that, or like having a landing page? What are some tips you have for something like that? So it depends on what you want. Content marketing, so writing blog posts can be very useful, but it can also be a giant sink of your time unless you're doing it strategically. So you need to think about both your long-term and short-term goals because content can be... Unless you approach it strategically and unless you approach it consistently, it can not lead you anywhere. But then the big question is, how do you approach it strategically and consistently? And you read all those blog posts who are like, you should just write like three to five times a week and that's consistent. Or you should just guest post a bunch of places over like a long period of time and that's consistent. Yeah, that's consistent, but it's not necessarily effective. So one of the theories that I came across, and this is something that Joanna Weed from Copy Hackers speaks about, is that if you want to use blogging effectively to market yourself, you need to do it in short bursts. So it's basically sprints. So you find a topic that you want to be an expert on. Let's go back to the park example. I want to fundraise for, like, clean up my local park and to just bring in new toys and make it super awesome for the whole neighborhood. And this is a topic that I'm passionate about. This is the thing I want to do. So I research everything I need to know about this topic. So like what kind of things people want to see in a local park, what kind of activities they can do, how these activities help them, how it's going to improve the lives of their kids and the community and just everything around that. So you take your topic and you do a lot of research and you research 
every aspect of that topic that uh, the person that you're trying to attract, like your reader, is going to be interested in. So for our volunteer, this will be how uh, they can change the face of the community, how creating a really healthy space for kids to play is going to help them be better adults and how it's going to improve the lives of everybody around them. You just research this topic as thoroughly as you can. And then you take that research and you turn it into a lot of blog posts. So you can start with like five or six or depending on publications you're publishing. Hey, you can use that research to turn out like 10 short blog posts. Then you contact different publications that your readers read. So in this case, you can contact like your local newspaper and local blogs that are focused in your area. And you get them to publish that in a very short period of time. Because this then makes you explode in front of your readers. So everywhere they're looking, they see your name in different publications. And so if you're trying to put yourself in front of somebody and persuade them quickly, this is an effective way to use blogging versus just posting to your blog consistently. Because people can't find your blog unless they really know about you already. That's fascinating. And it sounds like there's multiple levels of research, but each one of them you spelled out, so it's really easy. I did not come up with that idea. I just feel I should put this out there. This is an idea I'm adapting, but it is not like my original idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it also incorporates the idea that sometimes a person needs to hear something, whether it's your name or content, more than one time before it really sinks in and really attaches to them and makes them take some kind of action on it. Yeah, it's like five to six touches or something. I can't remember the exact numbers. Yeah, yep, something like that. But I mean, yeah, just think about like your own buying decisions. Sometimes you need to see the same thing like over and over and over again just for it to even register, like to break through the noise. And that's why with blog content, especially if that's how you want to do it, just doing it like once a week or twice a week on your blog where, I mean, it's already going to be about you because it's your blog. It's not giving the reader a chance to get that confirmation from other sources that you know what you're talking about, because it's just you telling them, hey, I know things. I mean, of course you think you know things, but they need that social proof. They need the social proof that other publications and other places they trust think that you know things. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a great way to build up credibility as well. Mm. So if we dig in a little bit to the writing, you mentioned you do research pretty thoroughly, and then you mentioned something that was a little bit surprising to me was that you said you write many blog posts based on the research instead of just one long blog post. What led you to that? Because I can't say I've heard that piece of advice anywhere. And I want to try and think through and talk through or like how that could be helpful. Okay, so the logic behind this particular idea is that it goes back to the touches. So somebody needs to hear you say, things around a particular topic more than once to understand that you are an authority on it. So it's not enough to just create one piece because then all you have is, say, one piece. And even if you guest publish that piece, it's one piece in one publication carrying that one message. But when they hear that message coming at them from different angles, it's the same message, just the same core message because you're trying to sell that core thing. That's what your research is about. But said in different ways from slightly different angles, it just makes your brain feel that it's truer, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There are like psychological terms as to why that works that I'm currently not remembering the names of. But just exposure. Yeah, no, I totally get it. It's like confirmation of a certain idea once you've seen it. Confirmation bias. That's the one. You're basically confirming the reader's bias that what you're saying is true from like a bunch of different locations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. 
So within each blog post, do you have a certain process that you have landed on as like what those articles would look like? Like how many words or how you're presenting it to the readers? Or do you find that it's different for whoever the reader is? Yeah, that just depends on the reader. So a thing about length, basically a thing needs to be as long as it takes you to persuade the reader that your point is something worth listening to. So if the reader has a very low awareness of a subject, let's say you're back to your park and you're getting your volunteers. If your reader is somebody who has never volunteered before, they will take more persuasion to understand why they should invest their time and essentially their money because, you know, that's what time is into your project than somebody who's already like a really ardent volunteer. That person, you could probably convince in about like 100 words because they already believe all the things. But to convince somebody who doesn't believe those things, then those take a lot more words. And that is what should inform the length of your blog posts. You need to understand who your reader is, how much they know and what they believe, and then just write for however long it takes for them to be convinced by your argument. Gotcha. Thank you. So I'm trying to think of other ways too. You're doing research up front, and then is there an element of looking at the content afterwards or like other kinds of metrics that you can look at besides the money or the impact, like whether it's uh, you're trying to get volunteers? Are there other kinds of like tells that the content that you're writing is working? Well, it just depends on your goal. Uh, Content is not going to support all the goals you've ever had about marketing. Like a piece of content should support a specific goal and then anything else it does outside of that is kind of a bonus. Like it's great that it's doing it, but let's say like if I really want to recruit volunteers, then the number of volunteers is probably the best indicator that I'm doing it well. The other numbers are important to pay attention to because it shows you what else your content is good at. But basically by giving it too many jobs, you're kind of making sure that it's not going to be very good at doing any of them. That's why you should give like your content one job. So whether that's like to get volunteers or maybe it's just its job is to go viral so to raise awareness. If that's its job, then don't expect it to also get you volunteers. It's like let it do one thing and let it do it well. Avoid ambiguity and like be very clear as to what your piece does. Yeah, I totally agree. What are some components of the research? What exactly are you looking for? Just understanding the customer, understanding their pain. What specific components do you want out of the research? Okay, so this kind of research is a little bit different to academic research. You have a bit of a bias when you're writing to promote your business, I mean, or promote an idea or a product. You're already making the assumption that your idea or your product is worth promoting and that it works. So the questions you're asking are, you basically want to find out what ideas people have that will help you sell that with research. My go-to research is if you can, try to speak to people that are either your customers, say if you already have a product, speak to your customers. If you don't have customers, speak to people who are experiencing the same problems as your customers. And with this, my process is actually pretty free. I like the first interview to be very open. My goal when I go into an interview like that is just to understand them better, to like understand what their pain is. And so most of the questions, I go in with the question like, so hey, like, what's the biggest thing you're struggling with when it comes to, and then whatever problem I'm trying to solve. But I let their responses then guide the things that we dig into. So in that, my biggest piece of advice would be just go in as openly as like with an open mind as you can and see where it takes you. And from there, then you can go into online research. 
which is um, looking through a lot of um, Facebook group comments and what people say on Twitter and blog post comments and Amazon review comments. When it comes to interviewing people, how do you even find people that will be willing to spend time and to interview them before you even have a product? You ask them. You would weirdly be surprised how many people would say yes, even if you've never spoken to them before, even if it's just a code email of like, hey, I am working on this thing. Can you help me? Okay. <laughs> and that can be the scariest thing. Yeah. But just ask them. Okay. People will help you and use the phrase, will you help me? Okay. That is weirdly effective. Just be perfectly honest about the fact that you need help. Yeah. Okay. We are wired to want to help other people. It's one of those magic phrases that makes the other person want to help you. Especially if you're like genuine about it. Yeah. And it makes them feel good about themselves so they can help someone. So yeah, just find people that uh, you want to interview. Just ask them. Like the worst they are going to do is ignore you. Like Exactly. That's pretty much the only bad outcome. Yep. So you were saying when it comes to researching like Amazon comments and things like that, you were in the middle of that. If you want to go ahead, expand on that a little bit more like forums and review comments and things like that. Yeah, usually. So my process for that is whatever the big pain is, whatever the thing you saw is, just Google topics around it. But don't read the articles that other people have written. Read the comments that people have left in those articles. And then use that to kind of guide. Like those will basically help you understand what pains people have. And then like, use those on your page. Copy, paste them into your document, and then just edit them to make them fit like whatever it is you're writing. Mm. But use those pains. Yeah, it's definitely really good advice. Because I know this is what I've been trying to do more and more of, is finding those pain points before I write a blog post or write, write something. But this is great. You know, I'm trying to think of some maybe uh, simple or lower risk ways that a person who may not have the confidence i.e. me, could take to reach out to a person and just ask, do you have any recommendations for someone who might be a little bit more timid at first to uh, reach out, uh, ask them some questions like that? I was thinking about this this morning before a call. <laughs> I was thinking about what low risk actually means. So is it low risk to, like, to you, to your kind of emotional state that it's a low risk? Like, What do you mean by low risk? Yeah, for me, it's a lot of emotional and probably not very real fears. Maybe just the vision I have of asking in the wrong way, being too demanding of a person's time or attention. Also, I have a lot of reluctance asking people, even though it could be really helpful and knowing where to draw that line. So some places I find it's a little bit more comfortable because I am not impacting like a, a big relationship that I already have. For example, mm -hmm. like if I know someone really well and I'm asking them something that may be out of the ordinary. So maybe I would see that as a little bit lower risk because it's a stranger or it's some person that I follow online maybe. And so I don't feel like I have too strong of a, a connection that I couldn't recover from it if I embarrass myself in some way or they just say no or ignore me or something like that. Um, so I, I think that's what I mean by low risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, I identify with that so much because I am like that. Before I actually got into code emailing, it took me about four years of thinking about code emailing, of writing emails I never sent, of trying to send one code email and then backing out of sending any more because it just felt so terrifying. And one of the things that helped me is I recently started working with a dream client, like in my field. And that was about a month ago. And as I was kind of thinking about like, how did I get here and how did this happen? I remembered 
that I had actually applied for a job with them about three years ago. So I was like, I should find that application. And I looked at it and it was absolutely awful. And it got ignored completely at the time. But just looking at that application and how awful it was and how much of a, I think, a, a moron it makes me look like if my ego had to get uh, involved in this. And then looking at the fact that I'm working with them today, realize that a lot of the things you do, they don't actually matter. And they don't not matter because like your feelings are not important. Like, they're kind of our reality, but they don't matter because nobody's actually going to remember them. That client doesn't remember I applied for a job with them. None of the mistakes that you make matter to anybody else as much as they matter to you. So that's not necessarily a technique to get past it, but just it's a thing I think that makes doing the scary thing a little bit easier. Okay. And so I'm thinking about that in terms of the way I pose the question. And personally, it sounds like maybe trying to think back on my own experiences where I have asked people or tried to initiate conversations with people online or in person and ask them something in the short term. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have that fear. And I might remember for a few days, like, oh, I said something that totally embarrassed me or they didn't get back to me. And so I might nitpick my wording and mm-hmm. say, like, what did I do wrong? Or are they just on vacation? Should I email them again? Blah, blah, blah. But thinking longer term, I don't have a lot of those recollections. I don't remember all of the nitty gritty details and how much I worried or even like what they responded with, if they responded at all. So is what you're trying to say is like trying to make it personal or think back on past experiences? Is that fair to It's one of those things that is difficult to word for me because of low risk and like what low risk and self-promotion means. If you're promoting yourself, there's always going to be some sort of emotional risk because you're putting yourself out there and that can feel very terrifying. But instead of actually thinking about low-risk techniques, which I think is the wrong way to think about it, I would think about your long-term outcomes. Like, why are you doing this? What are the things you want to get out of this? In three years, let's say like you've promoted yourself and you've built your business. What does that business look like? And what does it mean to you? And it's reverse engineering from there. They're figuring out like, is feeling a bit uncomfortable by sending that email to a CEO that I've never met? Like in three years, is it really going to matter if it helps me get to the place I want to go? So I'd actually say like low risk techniques are like nothing's ever truly low risk. And if it's low risk, it's usually like low reward too. But pursuing the things you want and just asking the questions that make you feel uncomfortable, if you feel that like the outcome is worth it for you, then like just make yourself do it. Like with code emails, I have to make myself do it. Like I sit down and I just like, I write them all in advance. I put them into my inbox and then uncomfortably sitting there with a cup of coffee, I just press send and then I leave the room so that I don't have to think about it. (laughs) But that's because of the outcome that I have in my mind of like where this is taking me. That's the only reason why I can do it. I think what you said earlier though is helpful and that is like, It's not about you. It's about the customer, the client, or the employer, or whoever you're trying to convince. At the very worst, they're going to ignore you. Like your bad email or your bad self-promotion is just going to simply be ignored. Your failure is not the center of their, you know, world. So I think it's some ways the like risk, it's more of an illusion that one has of the importance of bad promotion your poorly done email where your cold email is just going to end up being like ignored. That's it. That's the worst that's going to happen. Like very, very rarely are people going to be like shaming you. 
And if they are, like, quite honestly, screw them. Like, they're just being jerks. Yeah, that's a really good indicator. You don't want to ever be anywhere near them. So, <laughs> so like, I think that's part of it is, like, the best way to remove the risk is remove the illusion of how important that piece of promotion actually is. Because the only kind of promotion that gets it is important is going to be good promotion or well-done promotion. That is, in much better words, exactly what I was trying to say. I don't, I don't well, know about better words. but <laughs> I liked the two things that you pointed out, Sophia, that there's always going to be some kind of emotional risk involved because you're putting yourself out there. And try reframing your risk as an opportunity or some kind of a, yeah, a there benefit. Yeah, Exactly. Which that is a theme that we've been talking about. And I think I need to find some way to actually incorporate that as some kind of a, a mantra to be able to break myself free from those moments where I just freeze up and I start fixating on the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, so that I can realize, no, I'm doing this because I can help this person and I think that they can help me. And there will be emotions. There's never not. Yeah. And I think it's just about being kind to yourself and that like, be kind to yourself about your emotions, but don't let them make your decisions for you because you're always going to feel uncertain and insecure. That's why I think it's just like, you have to remove, you have to acknowledge like, okay, I'm feeling this way. If I stepped away for 20 minutes and had a coffee and came back, would that make this feeling better? If it would, then like step away, do something else, then come back and do the promotion thing when you're feeling a bit like more comfortable. That's a good way to put it. Don't let them make the decision for you. Yeah. The feelings is a good indication of your capabilities and willingness to do something. It isn't an indication of whether you should or shouldn't do it. No, it's just fear. It's there to protect you. Like your feelings are trying to protect you. But with something like this where, I mean, the biggest danger is somebody just saying, uh, why did you send me this dumb email? Is that really that dangerous? Like it feels awful, but it's not like a lion trying to eat you. Right. Yeah. I think like the risk that I'm more aware of being that I've done this a lot is like whether you're wasting your time. But I think what you've indicated is like the importance of research beforehand kind of helps make sure that that time is put to good use, it sounds like. Mm, yeah. Sophia, you had mentioned earlier copy hackers. Yes. I was wondering if there were other books or other sources where people can learn more about copywriting and self-promotion and selling products and what you do. Okay, so definitely copy hackers for copy. And all things copy. In terms of books, let me look at my bookshelf. Best way to answer that question. <laughs> okay, so books I have found really helpful. That are, copywriting is mostly, it's sales. Copywriting is sales. And sales is all about persuasion. So to get better at this, I found books about sales and persuasion really useful. So Drive by Daniel Pink that did a lot for like my mindset. Actually, most books by Daniel Pink are really interesting. They really help you kind of figure out how to persuade people better. Influence by Robert Houdini. That's a really great one for just uh, figuring out how the human brain works. Just uh, anything by Daniel Kahneman on, again, on psychology. So I'd say the best way to get better at sales and self-promotion is just read a lot of psychological research. Oh, and breakthrough advertising for copywriting. Can't believe I almost forgot that one. It's a good collection. I haven't heard of a lot of those. I think the only one I had heard of was Drive. Thank you for sharing that list. And uh, how about yourself? Where would you like people to go if they'd like to learn more about you or get in contact with you? <laughs> Having just talked about self-promotion. I think my website, sophiadaglan.com, it's very bare, but you can find me there. Otherwise, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Okay. And we will go ahead and look that up and make sure that we put links in our show notes as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we close out? 
No, just thank you so much for having me. And I hope uh, this helps. It made any kind of sense. But if it didn't, just email me and tell me that it didn't. And I'll try to do it better. (laughs) It made a whole lot of sense. And I really appreciate you spending the time to share what you do with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Sophia. I think it's like super helpful to a lot of people, not just folks in the product space, but like people who are always trying to convince somebody of anything through email or written form. What you've said are some great tips regarding like knowing where they're coming from and writing for them and not necessarily for yourself. I know, you know, anytime I'm updating a resume or doing a cover letter, I'll definitely be coming back to this episode. Cool. Thank you guys. Thank you. Take care.